Welcome to Engage Arizona, public policy for daily life. One of the most listened to voices in culture and politics today is Ben Shapiro. Known for his no-nonsense style and direct analysis, Shapiro doesn't shy away from any relevant topic. Today, he speaks with Kathy Harrod about the state of the upcoming election, the effects of COVID-19 on our economy, and the role it could play in the 2020 election. Here now is Kathy Harrod. Joining me today on Engage Arizona is Ben Shapiro. Um, Welcome, Ben. Glad to have you with us today. Okay, so I want to start with just um, one of the treats during the COVID pandemic has been to see um, you and your dad doing duets on violin and piano. So are we going to see more of those in the coming days? Yeah, I mean, we've got some extra time. And uh, when my kids are asleep, then it's a great way to blow off steam. We're we're planning to do a a recording of the Air on the G-String by Bach uh, and maybe an arrangement that he wrote of Exodus, uh, Mm. which is of the, um, the, the film score. We have a few that are coming up. So, yeah, I mean, why not? People are, you know, looking for a kind of fun and relaxing content. So if they can stand some mediocre to decent violin playing and, and uh, some interesting arrangements, then give it a look. Well, and how old were you when you started taking violin lessons and learning to play violin? I was five. I figured, yeah, that's what I thought. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and I was, I'm, you know, my, my violin skills have stagnated since I was about 20, but uh, there was a point there where I was pretty good. Yeah. Well, and so... Obviously, the news, our daily lives, we're all consumed with what's going with, on with COVID, the pandemic, family discussions, everything focused on it. So, you know, one of your often repeated sayings is facts don't care about your feelings. So aren't we functioning these days a lot on feelings and opinions because the facts aren't clear? Or are the facts more clear in regard to certain populations that are vulnerable with the, with the pandemic? I mean, I think there are certain things that are becoming fairly clear here. I think that it's pretty obvious that the infection fatality rate, meaning the number of people who will die over the number of people who are infected, is going to end up somewhere between 0.3 and 0.6. It's not going to be the same as the flu. It's going to be a multiple of the flu, but it's also not going to be 3 or 5%, as was originally suggested, the the sort of MERS or SARS-types numbers that were were originally suggested. I think it's fairly obvious that there is a, a major difference in population vulnerability, that if you're talking about people who are above the age of 80, they are maybe up to hundreds of times more vulnerable to this than, than small children. Almost no small children have died of this. If you're under the age of 20, the chances that you're going to die of this if you don't have some serious immunocompromised position uh, are almost zero. That's also true if you are not immunocompromised and you're under the age of 40. It's when you start to hit the age of 40 that start that the, the stats start to increase. Uh, it, once you hit the age of 60, they start to increase fairly radically. It's hard to tell whether that has to do with the age or whether that has to do with the prevalence of pre-existing conditions. As you get older, people tend to have more hypertension, they tend to have diabetes more often, they tend to have heart disease more often. So the the, the comorbidities tend to increase with age. Um, and so what that means is that there are certain populations that are more, more vulnerable and certain populations that are less vulnerable. These things are inarguable. It's also not arguable that the thing is more transmissible than the flu, that it's easier to get than the flu. It's also not arguable that the easiest way to transmit this thing is to be in a, a closed space with somebody for a prolonged period of time within a certain distance, right? These are, these are facts. Now, none of that answers the value question as to how we should go about reopening the economy or when we should go about reopening the economy. And this is where it really drives me up a wall when you hear politicians, members of the media say, we're just following the data and the science. I just laid out, I laid out to you basically the relevant factors when it comes out to the data and the science. When it comes out to the data on the economic side, which actually matters, we're going to talk about 30 million people unemployed by the end of this particular week. We're going to talk about 10% unemployment, supposedly, according to the CBO, lasting all the way into next year. We're talking about small businesses going under by the hundreds of thousands. I mean, th- these, are, these are, again, factors that have to be taken into consideration. Now, how do you weigh all that? That's a question of competing values. And this is where 
politics really does come into place. When you hear politicians suggest that they're going to open up when it's safe, that's a lie. There's no such thing as safe here. When you hear politicians say that we're just following the data and the science, that's a lie too, because we all have the same data and we all have the same science. The question is how we calibrate the various interests at play here to come up with the best possible policy. And I think that, honestly, the best way to do that is to go to local communities, look at the different populations, and figure out exactly how we keep the people who are most vulnerable safe and why we shouldn't treat you know, Arizona, the middle of Arizona, like New York City. Arizona is not New York City, and pretending that it is is foolhardy. Exactly, and you can pinpoint in a state like Arizona where the vulnerable populations are. The Navajo Reservation has certainly had a major outbreak. Um, some of the assisted living places. Yeah, we're not New York. We're not on the subway. We're not um, in large gatherings at this point. What about the the long-lasting impacts, about how it's going to change our culture, um, our government? What, what do you foresee with that as far as the, the long-lasting impact? So on a personal level, obviously, this depends a lot on whether a vaccine or, or some sort of therapeutic is developed. If, if a vaccine were developed, a therapeutic were developed, then what you would see is people you know, basically washing their hands more often, and that would be the extent of it, because then we'd all go back to our normal daily lives, and that's what we all pray for. Uh, at the same time, if that doesn't happen, you'll see social distancing, you'll see people wearing masks, you'll see people thinking twice about whether they want to go to a movie theater for the evening or whether they want to rent in, and you're going to start to see mass gatherings you know, obviously tail off. You're going to start to see people probably go to church and tranches, right, to, to socially distance. So instead of one service, you'll have four services, and they will be at different times of the day so that people can actually go in smaller numbers. And all of those things are likely to happen if you don't see some sort of major underlying change. In terms of the system itself, this is going to go in one of two ways. One way is that this is used as an excuse to massively expand the size of, and scope of government. Government interventionism becomes just a fact of life because you have tens of millions of people unemployed and demanding that the government come up with some method of taking care of them. The other possibility is that people, once they're finally let out of their houses, say, we need to be left alone by government. The government is what caused this in the first place with these lockdowns, which may or may not have been a very good idea, particularly for most people outside of New York City. You know, the fact is that if the government had not locked people down, a lot of these businesses would still be operating. And even if the government lets people up, then people are going to be able to start moving into industries and areas that are more flourishing and away from industries and areas that are less flourishing. So this could go one of two ways. I think that this, this really does highlight the battle that was simmering under the surface, but, but has now broken out into the open. It was a lot easier to make the case for liberty when 3.5% unemployment was dominant. When it's 30% unemployment, obviously, you can see a lot of people calling for major government interventionism. Obviously, the great irony is that when it's 30% unemployment, that's actually when you need the free market most. That's when government intervention, interventionism is the worst because you can lengthen a recession into a depression and a depression into a great depression with too much government restrictions, price and wage controls, regulations of businesses, deciding what's essential and what is not, taxing the hell out of people and borrowing money that we're never going to repay. Yeah. It, it, all of these are, are things that are on the table right now. So it's a dangerous time for sure. The government's basically manufacturing money. Are they not to be able to, to do to what they're doing? Yes. I mean, they're now taking out debt. Uh, they're, they're talking about 50 to 100 year bonds because the demand for American debt has, has plummeted dramatically because the economy is, is so weak uh, right now. You know, that, that means that eventually we're going to have to inflate our way out of this and pay off the debt by, by doing so, which means that everybody's savings are, are worth less. Now, I know there was a lot of talk about that in 2007, 2008, that maybe there would be inflation. But the reality is that that was an underlying financial problem in which money actually disappeared. What you have here is the money didn't disappear. All that happened is that demand curves changed radically, meaning that people are not spending that money, that whatever money is out there has basically, you know, all your property has dropped in value because the demand has gone away in very serious and lasting ways in, in, in some segments of the population. And that means that in order to jog demand, the government is presumably going to try inflation. That in order to pay back debt, 
the government is going to have to drive inflation because if nobody's buying bonds and the government needs to take debt, how exactly do they hope to take out the debt without printing money? You mentioned vaccines. And what I've wondered is just like people are likely to be hesitant to go to larger gatherings, how hesitant will people be to take a vaccine, whether it's in a few months or 18 months from now that are people going to really you know, gravitate? Oh, yes, let's get the vaccine. Or are they going to wait and see? Does it, is this vaccine something you should take? Uh, I think that most people will take the vaccine. And here's the nice thing about that is that once herd immunity has been created, then herd immunity has been created. And they're suggesting that the low end of herd immunity here would be about 60%. I think that most people, if, that 70, 80% of the population would probably take a vaccine if it were presented today. And the choice was, you get to stay inside for another six months, or here's a vaccine, take it today. I think the vast majority of people, particularly in vulnerable populations, would be taking the vaccine. When people fear vaccines, typically they, they fear it with regard to children. Now, I think those fears are off base. I don't think they're data, they're data supported. Uh, I'm very much in favor of vaccines. Mm-hmm. But if you are worried about it, then you're mostly going to be worried about that with regard to, to young children. Children tend to be the least vulnerable to, to this particular disease. And so that means that if you are older, you're probably going to get the vaccine like ASAP. And if you are in you know, mid-range, you'll probably end up getting the vaccine, given that the alternative would be a continued lockdown and suppression of the American economy to the point where you can't go to church with large groups of people or have a wedding, then I think most people will take the vaccine. So how do you grade President Trump, Vice President Pence on their handling of, of the virus and, and what's happened so far? So in terms of their actual activity, I think that they've done a very good job. I mean, I would give it maybe a, a B plus, A minus. Uh, the only reason being that we should have been earlier on the ball, uh, that the CDC shouldn't have screwed this thing up and that we should have had better testing back in February. But as far as the federal response in terms of ventilators, every governor says they've done a good job, including Cuomo. Yeah. There was no ventilator shortage. In terms of ICU beds, there was no ICU shortage. In terms of the, the 15 days to slow the spread guidelines, those were guided by Brooks and Fauci. Those were correct. In terms of the, the shutdown of travel from China in late January, that was correct. The shutdown from Europe, that was correct. A lot of the actions that the Trump administration has taken are exactly right. And I'm really grateful that the Trump administration was in charge and not a Democratic administration, which would, see, which would attempt to seize power on the back of the pandemic and completely rewrite the bargain between the American people and the government. Also, the, the Trump administration has done an admirable job of coordinating with the private sector, which, after all, has a very large stake in getting past this. They've done a really good job with that. That's, that's the upside. As always with the Trump administration, you can basically bifurcate how Trump has been between his actions and how he has acted publicly. Uh, and this is where you know the Twitter account, I know a lot of people love the Twitter account. The Twitter account is really not serving him well here. Uh, the, the Twitter account, what, we, what people want to feel is a sense of leadership and reassurance. Right? People feel that this is the most upending event of my lifetime, and it is not close. And in my parents' lifetime, my parents are 64. So this has been the most upending event in American politics since World War II maybe since before that, maybe since the Civil War. And in that moment, what you need is a steady sense of a strong hand at the tiller and reassurance. And President Trump doing these press conferences where he is, where he is sort of musing publicly out loud about various solutions and, and where he is going to war with the media. And listen, the media deserve every ounce of, of spite he can heap on them. I mean, they really are terrible at their jobs. But is any of that reassuring? Is any of that calming? No, I mean, Pence is much more calming. Pence is much more reassuring just as a human being. Uh, President Trump is a volatile dude. Uh, and that messaging has led to a level of unpopularity for him that is completely unjustified by the actual underlying activity taken by the Trump administration. So if I were he, what I would be urging right now is let's do, let's do health press conferences where we have Burks and Fauci answering questions and Redfield from the CDC answering questions. And instead of having Jim Acosta posturing or Olivia Nuzzi posturing, instead you have health policy reporters from the Washington Post who actually know which questions to ask and that American people care about. Fauci and Burks, in your opinion, have done a great job during all of this? 
Uh, I think they've done exactly what they are supposed to do. They're epidemiologists. They're not economists right. and they're not the policymakers. Mm -hmm. right? They are people who are recommending what should we do in order to stop the spread. And so they've been recommending what you do in order to stop the spread. This is my entire point. I think that a lot of people have been blaming Fauci and Burks for President Trump's decision making here. Trump is the one who has to decide in the end what the competing values are in terms of opening the economy versus the measures that we're taking in order to stop the slow of the spread and all of this. You know, th the fact is that if you have a plumber and the plumber recommends that you need to fix your toilet, it's going to cost you $3,000. Maybe it does cost $3,000. That's not the fault of your plumber. Right now, it's up to you to decide whether or not the $3,000 is worth the toilet or not. Fauci and Burks are the people who are recommending what they think is going to be necessary in order to accomplish the end of the pandemic. That is not the, the same question as what can America practically do in order to balance the interests of 330 million Americans in the world economy with the spread of a virus that in the end is going to be somewhat dangerous, more dangerous than the flu, but is not going to be black plague levels of dangerous like we originally thought this thing was going to be. So let's switch now to the election. And obviously it's still a huge election year for our country. Um, thoughts on how this is going to impact the election? Is it going to hurt or help Trump? Or, or do we even know yet? Because um, short memory and we're still months away. Yeah, we have no idea. I mean, right now, I, I can't even remember a time before this happened, but mm -hmm. a scarce seven weeks ago, we had 3.5% unemployment and Bernie Sanders was the nominee in the Democratic Party, right? I mean, so, <laughs> so things, things have changed rather radically here in the, in the United States. It's hard to tell where things are going to be. Let's say that the Oxford University vaccine ends up working. And let's say we get to September and millions of doses are available and people are just taking the vaccine. And now we've got herd immunity and older people can go out, they can go back, they can, people with pre-existing conditions can go back. Trump will win, he'll win in a walk because people will be optimistic, they'll feel good. Uh, they will feel as though the Trump administration did all of it, all it could, uh, and, and he'll do really well. If, on the other hand, we're still engaging in some form of social distancing, the, the recovery is soft because we have an underlying lack of demand, and the president is, has changed his ways and is demonstrating uh, a little bit more consistent and, uh, and calming leadership, then he still has a decent shot because Joe Biden is not an alive person, and, uh, and that, that is obviously of disadvantage in a political debate. If the president continues to be incredibly volatile in his rhetoric, and if people tend to feel worried, like very worried, and lots of people are out of work, and Joe Biden is basically not even present on the campaign trail, then Trump has trouble. I mean, this is, this, the, the, the polls demonstrate that he is down in Michigan right now. He's down in Pennsylvania right now. He's down in Wisconsin right now. He may be down in Florida right now. You could easily see this thing turning really away from, from President Trump, even in states like Arizona, which is now a purple state. You could see this thing turning away from President Trump, which is why now, I've gotten a lot of flack for saying President Trump needs to be disciplined, but he does actually need to be disciplined. You know, the future of the country does rest on whether he decides to act in ways that are more conducive to his victory. And all the sort of fulmination on social media is not going to be conducive to his victory. And I've been saying for a while that Trump's major vulnerability always was suburban women. Right? It, was his, it was his vulnerability in 2016. He was barely able to overcome it. In 2018, suburban women showed up in droves to vote against the Republicans, and Republicans got wiped out. Suburban women are security moms. Suburban women want to feel secure. They want to feel like they don't have to wake up every morning and dread what's coming next. They don't want to feel volatility. President Trump needs to rein it in, and he can do better than this. I mean, I, I really do think that he can, because he has. I've seen periods where he's done much better than this in terms of his public facing. Now, again, he is going to be campaigning against Joe Biden, who's a very weak candidate. Uh, Joe Biden, when I say weak, that may even include physically weak. I mean, he, he just does not seem to be all there, Joe Biden. Uh, and we still have not heard even the beginning, let alone the end, of the, of the sexual assault allegation stuff with regard to, to Tara Reid. So we're, we're going to see where all that plays out. It's too early to say is always the answer until the election. Right. I found that out in 2016 when I lost a lot of money betting against President Trump. I figured <laughs> if it was going to be a bad election night, I may as well win some money. It ended up being a good election night, and I lost a bunch of money, so I can live with that. But with all that said, 
Uh, right now, he is, you know, if the election were held today, he'd be in a lot of trouble. If the election is held in six months, which it is, then I have no idea. And I'm hopeful that we'll have enough of a recovery and that Joe Biden continues to be as weak a candidate as he is, that Trump could still pull out a victory. On the suburban women question, what I am questioning is in 2016, where there was the concern about his past, I'll say encounters with women, not his wife. But today, it, it seems like, you know, there's no evidence of anything of that during his tenure as president. But it's his rhetoric. It's his sharp tongue. It's how he it's his name calling. It, it's those types of things that he could discipline himself and rein in that would just give more of a comfort level to say, yes, I'll go vote for Donald Trump. That's 100 percent right. President Trump in you know, politics is, is really about two things, making it very difficult to vote for your opponent and making it very easy to vote for you. President Trump is great at the former and terrible at the latter. Right? He's very, very good at making it difficult to vote for his opponent. Right? He took Hillary and he dragged her around in the mud. And by the end of the election, nobody wanted to vote for Hillary Clinton. And when it comes to making people want to vote for President Trump, he's got that base that is desperate to vote, but they can only vote once. And, and getting moderates to want to vote for Trump Getting people who are wavering to want to vote for Trump mm-hmm. is going to be, you know, a, a difficult thing for him to do unless he can demonstrate some discipline. And I understand that's not who he is as a human being, and that's not what brought him victory. And he looks at people who call for him to change, and he says, listen, I ran for office one time, and now I'm president, so you can shut up. And I get all of that. But mm-hmm. what, 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 got you to the, what got you to the Super Bowl may not end up winning you the Super Bowl if there, is a, if there is a different defense in play. And right now the situation has changed fairly radically on the ground not just with regard to electoral fortunes, but obviously with regard to the underlying condition of the country. So on the Biden question, is he going to still be the nominee or will the Democrats at some point go ahead and throw him out because of the terror raid allegations? No, he's going to be the nominee. Uh, Barring any barring any conclusive evidence that Tara Reid could present, barring barring the blue dress from Tara Reid. No, he's a nominee because the Democrats, number one, are completely inconsistent in their standards. Now, by the way, I think the standard they're using with Biden is actually the correct standard. Right, they just should have used it with Kavanaugh. Right? The, 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 I'm not urging that, that Biden ought to be treated like Kavanaugh. I'm arguing that Kavanaugh ought to have been treated like Biden, right? meaning that mm-hmm. we should have been looking at allegations and saying allegations are not sufficient to, to establish guilt. Democrats now have discovered this magical thing called due process. That demonstrates that they're ridiculous hypocrites. But that doesn't mean that you know, if it were up to me, Joe Biden would be thrown out on the basis of a single allegation from 1993. Okay, so the vice president pick for Biden. Um, how, how do you assess that? Yeah, if he's smart, Amy Klobuchar. Uh, if he, I agree with that. I mean, he, 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 he doubling down on the sort of I'm moderate, I'm not threatening. Uh, let me pick somebody who doesn't appear to be a crazy radical and who also you know has the chops in case God forbid something happens to me. That that's the smart pick, right? Amy, Amy Klobuchar would actually be a smart pick. I mean, frankly, if he if he wanted to go off the board, Kristen Cinema wouldn't be a dumb pick for him. Oh, no, Arizona, no, 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 no. <laughs> I know, I know, but Arizona's in play. And Kristen Sinema, her voting record is much more moderate than, than some of the other members of the Democratic Party. So as radical as she is, she's still more moderate than the radical Democratic Party of which she is a member. Um, and, and so that wouldn't be a dumb play for her. He's not going to do it, obviously. He's, no. he's going to pick, he, pick Klobuchar, I think. Uh, I think that the flirtation with Stacey Abrams is just hilarious. I'm just enjoying the hell out of that because <laughs> basically she is doing everything she can to gain his attention. She's standing outside of his house with a boombox. Yesterday, she actually broke into his kitchen and boiled a rabbit. Like she will do anything <laughs> in order to in order to get Joe Biden to pick her. The good news for her is that even if he doesn't pick her, she can still walk around proclaiming she's vice president for years. She's been doing that as governor of Georgia, so so why not? But I think he's most likely to select Klobuchar in the end. He's most comfortable with her, and you know, I I, 
I guess you could pick Kamala Harris, but that'd be a dumb move for him. I, Kamala Harris is just so off-putting and, and she's not going to win many additional black votes. People no. who are black don't like Kamala Harris. I mean, she, she just completely blew up in the primaries. And he doesn't bring any, she wouldn't bring any states to him. I mean, she's right, exactly. That, that, and not any votes to him. I mean, he blew her out. She called him a racist and then he blew her out with black voters. So she's not bringing anything to the table. Yeah. So what about, um, obviously the Daily Wire is a news source that people should be paying attention to on a regular basis. Any other news sources that you look to that people should be aware of to just, when, when, when we know how, how off the current media is? Um, I mean, in terms of mainstream media, I think the Wall Street Journal does a better job, obviously, than the New York Times. Um, I think that the Daily Caller News Foundation does an excellent job in a lot of its reporting. Uh, the, the, the Washington Free Beacon, the Washington Examiner, I think do a really good job in, in a lot of their reporting. Those are the ones that I tend to trust a little bit more uh, on the right. Uh, and then in terms of the mainstream media, listen, I, I read the New York Times. I read the Washington Post. I read all of those. You just have to know what you're reading. Right? You just have to be able to analyze news. And then you can read them and you can still get a lot out of them. You just have to recognize that usually the news is buried in paragraph 11 and below. Okay, so last question. Um, you and your wife have been blessed with, a, I think, a new baby girl um, during the COVID. And I certainly have had friends who have been in the same situation. It's a little bit different to have to be going through um, hospitals um, when you're having a baby during these times. Any advice or, um, you know, words of wisdom to those that are, are um, still expecting and in the current hospital situations or, or you and your wife? You know, so we were, we were really lucky. So we, our baby came March 4th. So it came oh, like right, right before all of this sort of <laughs> broke into the open. So we got out of the hospital and then, you know, within a week and a half, basically they'd shut down all uh, inpatient surgery at, uh, or outpatient surgery at, at these hospitals. So uh, we, we were really lucky. Um, yeah, I, I hope that by the time, you know, by the time this is released, I think that a lot of places are going to loosen up some of the restrictions with regard to people who are coming in and are pregnant and being able to have a husband in the room, I would hope most of these places have wings that are that are you know separate from the, the COVID nineteen wings, which is good. They have ER entrances that are separate, which is also really important. And also, I think that we're going to get better testing, particularly at hospitals. So you'll be able to test, you know, when you come in, and your husband will be able to test. You'll see if if those people, uh, if if you are you know an antibody carrier or if you have COVID nineteen, in which case you can feel a lot more safe and secure, and so can the staff. Well, thanks so much for joining us on Engage Arizona. We look forward, again, Ben will be with us on September 17th at Camelback Inn in Paradise Valley. You'll get to ask your questions of Ben, and it'll be another evening with just a few short weeks before we start early voting in Arizona. So thanks, Ben. Thanks for your leadership in the country and for your analysis that that we all benefit from. So God bless and um, enjoy um, the rest of the day. You too. Stay safe. Thanks. Thank you for listening to Engage Arizona, public policy for daily life. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd love to hear from you. Subscribe, rate, and give a review on any podcast platform you use. For more information, visit azpolicy.org.